I'd rather be. This is your time to lit up with Angela Breidenbach. Lit Up is lighting up the literary world with book reviews, in-depth expert interviews, and ideas for you to design a lucrative writing career. Expand your imagination to enhance your life. Lit Up is always family-friendly, always good for your heart. Now, here is your host to Lit Up, Angela Breidenbach. Hi, this is Angela Breidenbach, and I'm so glad you're back with us. We did take a little bit of a hiatus. I had a book to finish and some things going on in my personal life. And then we also are doing just a little bit of tweaking on our program. So you'll get to hear a little bit more about who our guests are as a person, maybe how they inherited their creativity, being the master of their own story, and their publishing or creative industry news so that you can pick the brains of experts and you can also learn and enhance your life, not only as a professional, but also your personal life, because we are holistic beings. We're not just a professional. We're not just a family person. We are all of that, all at once. So here we are to work through not only the parts of you, but the whole of you. And Lit Up is here to help you become a more creative more holistic and more lucrative person. Before we get into the interview with our guest today, Davalyn Spencer, I wanted to have the opportunity to share with you what my experience was being an attendee to the Connecting Writers with Hollywood conference. I did get to go last year as well. It was the uh, the beginning of this conference, and J.D. DeWitt, the conference director, is a part of actually a couple of different businesses that connect writers with Hollywood in an ongoing situation where they are trying to find great stories, great books that will translate to great movies, visual, you know, written books that have just either great stories behind them are very cinematic. They just have a story to portray that a lot of people will connect to. And so that's where J.D. came up with this idea of connecting writers with Hollywood. But as an attendee this year, I had such a unique and wonderful opportunity to explore networking, to attend the classes, to just meet with J.D. and talk on a personal basis. I really had a phenomenal time. As a writer, now I've written 17 books and novellas, and that includes nonfiction, it includes devotionals, it includes uh, historical and contemporary romance. I thought going to this, I'm really interested in becoming a screenwriter as well. I'd like to take my books and have movies made out of them. I do have this dream. So I thought I'd go this year and soak it up. And I told some of my friends that I met there that I've known from other conferences or whatever, or new friends, nope, I'm not pitching my books this year. I went to soak it up and to feel like I could learn and understand what was going on in the minds of the experts and in the industry. It was amazing. I could have pitched. I chose not to because I'm in a place in my own career and in my own life doing uh, genealogical studies to get my credentials so I can do that not only to add to my books and my stories, but also so that I have the opportunity to explore an area of fascination for me. Trying to do too much, you can really get overwhelmed. 
And in talking to one of my friends, Leslie McDaniel, she was there and we spent a lot of time together. And I told her when I started this journey of becoming a published author, I felt very much like I was a, a kindergartner having to learn a whole new industry and network professionally is, is a little bit different than the way you interact, say, with my previous career, which had been airline and supervisor, and then I went into sales and radio and things like that. Understanding people as people, that's pretty much the same. But understanding the lingo and the educational background that it takes to do an entirely different industry, that was fascinating and overwhelming. And it could get a little bit intimidating at different times. So as I was talking to Leslie, I said, this year I chose to come as an attendee because I knew in the industry of movies, taking books to screen, it's an entirely new element. And I felt like I was starting over like a kindergartner again. So much to absorb, so much to learn. And of course, it makes you feel like there is so much more to learn. It was a wonderful way to connect with people that are some of the big wigs in Hollywood. You just kind of get a chance to say hello to them, meet them, talk on a normal one-to-one -one basis that you wouldn't get in everyday life. But I did feel like they want to know and understand who you are as a person. That really got hammered home. Some of the speakers that I really, really enjoyed, of course now I enjoyed everyone, but I didn't get the opportunity because it's such a busy thing to do, going to conferences. I didn't get the opportunity to hear every single speaker. But I enjoyed very much hearing Rich Peluso, just Sony's Christian and family friendly arm of their studio. What an amazing speaker and fascinating. I totally enjoyed Max Tim and Felicity Wren. They were quite funny, and it was fun to hear the insiders scoop on the ISA, which is the International Screenwriters Association. I also got to hear Bobby Downs, who's the founder of ChristianCinema.com. I had the opportunity to listen to, and there was a ton of different books there that you could purchase, at a book table that was run by Auntie's Bookstore, and I got to meet their new author coordinator for author events in Spokane, and her name is Margaret, and she was just a delightful young woman. When I had the chance to go and buy the books, I looked at all of the different ones, but I remembered Diane Drake, how I was able to connect and understand the communication pattern. In doing so, I felt like maybe I would better understand her communication pattern as a writer. I really enjoyed having the opportunity to learn from her in her workshop. And then I picked up her book. I, I didn't want to buy a whole lot of books because, you know, traveling with books it gets heavy. But I also, there's certain books that when you're there and you get to listen to the expert, you have the opportunity to say, this is the book I really need and want. And so I had her autograph it for me, which was really neat. I brought it home and I already started reading it. In reading her book, even the first several pages, I mean, well into the first chapter, I was really pleased with the book that I bought from Diane Drake. And it's called Get Your Story Straight. A Step-by-Step -step Guide to Screenwriting by a Million-Dollar Screenwriter. I think she's a lovely lady, and she communicates very, very well. 
She used a lot of very well-known movies to give examples and clips that she was able to show on the screen. She teaches you the essential elements and principles of screenwriting with examples from popular films. And I know a lot of people do that. But I think what's important when you're purchasing a book or you're getting a class is listen to or get a sample of their communication style. Because lots of books are written, and this is a key element for you as a creative as well. There's tons of books written about the same topic. I get it. We all have the same ideas over and over. There's nothing new under the sun. But what is unique is how a person may communicate that to you. So keep looking for what you want to learn in the communication styles of the writer, and that'll help you choose the right type of a book or novel that you feel like you're going to really enjoy and absorb well. Uh, Diane Drake also talks about keys to creating a hero your audience will really care about, how to structure your story into three compelling acts, the secret to making your scenes and story build as they progress, insider tips on the business of showbiz and how to best try to break in, and how to keep going when the muse is fickle and much more. Now that, of course, tickled me because my muse is my feline personal assistant, and I thought it was just a really cute play on words for me personally. Another thing that I found really encouraging was it was very family-friendly, the event as a whole, but I loved listening to these people that are selling in Hollywood and are buying in Hollywood. A lot of the speakers were buyers for Hollywood. And they were talking about don't use expletive language for effect because 12 in a row doesn't make it more emotional. What they want is emotional, evocative great stories and cussing doesn't make a great story or make it more universally interesting or give it much more emphasis on a situation. In fact, these Hollywood folks said they're sick to death of it. So don't add all those cuss words into your script just because you think that's what Hollywood wants. Truth be told, they were all standing up there going, no, not really. I thought that was fabulous and it was really encouraging to me. I loved the one-on-one -on -one communication. I loved the simple nice way people just spoke to each other and said hi. It was very friendly and it wasn't that super high power pressure thing that it could have been in the big city or anything like that that we might imagine it would be. It was a great experience. I learned a lot and I would encourage you, when Connecting Writers with Hollywood comes around again in 2019, sign up. It's very affordable, it's very helpful, and it's a wonderful, unique conference to help writers get their books to movies and help screenplay writers find a place for their screenplay. I hope this was helpful, and now let's get on with our interview with Miss Davalyn Spencer. And she's going to share with us about her brand new release, An Unexpected Redemption, and she has some special contest news. She's the wife and mother of professional rodeo bullfighters, and Davalyn writes cowboy romance. She's an ECPA and Publishers Weekly bestselling author and winner of the Will Rogers Gold Medallion for Inspirational Western Fiction. And she's fairly certain her previous career as a rodeo journalist and crime beat reporter prepared her for a life in Colorado wrangling Blue the Cowdog and mouse detectors Annie and Oakley. Welcome. Hello, Angie. It's so nice to be with you today. Did I pronounce your name correctly? 
Well, about half the people do and half the people don't, but I come to anything, including mom. <laughs> but typically it's Davelin. Not really spelled as it should. It's Dave, like Dave, yes. My father's name was Dave. Oh, do you know in Scotland, they would often add Ina, I-N-A, at the end of a man's name in order to make it feminine. But then they would shorten it. So if you were in Scotland and you were named after your dad, your name would be Davina, and then they would call you Ina. Interesting, very interesting. I was Davy all through high school, Davy. Oh, All that's so cute. I like that. Have you ever named a character Davy? No, I haven't. I've wanted to name a man Spencer, but I thought that might not fly to have a character named Spencer and the author named Spencer. Oh, I think it would be wonderful. Most of the time, I think when people are actually reading the book, they forget who the author is anyway. They're immersed in the story. <laughs> well, that's encouraging. I might. Yeah, I would. I would. Stay right where you are. There's more lit up right after this. Pick up a copy of the Captive Brides Collection today. Great historic romances, perfect for any season. You can get it online or at your favorite local retailer. Discover how the troubles from your past have prepared you for a beautiful future in Gems of Wisdom by Angela Breidenbach. In Gems of Wisdom, you'll learn how to forgive emotional pirates, better manage negative people, tough situations, and face your fears. Become the woman of courage, confidence, and candor you want to be. Get your copy of Gems of Wisdom, the treasure of experience today, wherever books are sold, or at AngelaBreidenbach.com. We're glad you're back for more Lit Up. Now here's your host, Angela Breidenbach. So tell me something. When we were talking about doing this interview, I told you that we're going to start getting a little bit more into who you are as a person and a little bit about your background, how maybe you became a creative person. Was it in your genealogy, in your DNA type of thing? And you mentioned something really unique about this particular book, An Unexpected Redemption. Can you tell us what that was? Yes, there is a marshal who is off the stage, so to speak. He's a background character, not a secondary character. But he influences the life of the hero in the book. And his name is George M. Booth. He's a marshal in Abilene, Kansas. And George M. Booth happens to be my husband's grandfather. Oh, man, that is awesome. And you said, was your husband, how close was he to his grandpa? His grandparents raised him. So they were very close. They were the parent figures in their life. Wow. I ended up being raised partially by my grandparents as well. So I think that's a really special thing that your husband got to do. And it's interesting how it puts us one step closer in generations to learning about our family. Does your husband or do you know of family stories that were told then because of that? He's heard some hair-raising stories about a great-uncle learning to drive a team of four at the age of 12 and traveling across country and on foot, as a matter of fact. And things like that, when you're growing up and you hear those stories sound impossible, but then as an adult, when you start to look into historical fact, you know, 150 years ago isn't that long ago, and there were probably a lot of 12-year-olds traveling across country on foot and working a man's job when they were 12. Oh, I would guarantee it. My great-aunt was one who had to bring her siblings from Sweden as a very young girl because her parents were already here. 
and they got dropped off at the train depot and then they had to walk and walk and they had no idea where they were going and they kept asking directions along the way, asking if anyone knew this particular family until they finally were able to find them. And they found a neighbor who knew who they were and helped them the rest of the way. Can you imagine leaving your children and then sending for your children and having a young, young, I don't think she was, I don't think she was 16 yet. Very young girl, bringing two younger siblings across the ocean and across the country. It sounds frightening, but I think those kinds of details are one of the reasons readers like to read historical fiction, because the characters are faced with challenges of course, that people face every day today, but they're also faced with those unusual life and death situational challenges. And I think readers enjoy hearing about those things. My great aunt used to tell me about hiding in a flour barrel from the Indians that came through. And of course, they weren't marauding Indians. They were just, you know, in the area. They looked for children. And when I was a young child, you know, hearing that story, I thought, well, boy, that's that's a tale if I ever heard one. And yet, <laughs> as a historical author now, in my research, even around here locally, there were Ute Indians that would just pick up the kids and take them back to camp. I mean, it, it wasn't, a you know, an outlandish thing. Of course, mom and dad would always go after the child, but it did happen. It's amazing to me what we assume today and what we don't understand about what life was like 150 years ago. And it's and we then take our sensibilities and we put those up as equal to something that might have happened in the past. And it isn't equal. And what I mean by that is life was different. Choices were different. Uh, dangers were different. We had to live a different sort of life. And today, everything is so changed, so modernized, that we can't even comprehend that lifestyle 150 years ago. We tend to make judgments yes, out we do. of context. And I think we forget that we aren't in the same situation. So we, we maybe wouldn't even have thought of the kind of judgment that we have nowadays it, it wouldn't have crossed our minds. Tell me something that you learned in writing this book that you thought might be very different from modern life that would surprise a reader. Well, my character runs off with her bow. She's prompted by an event that happens in her family, and she just runs away with this fella, and he turns out to be a louse. So she's up the proverbial creek, learns a new skill to support herself, mm-hmm. and uh, situations lead to her returning home. So she has to go back home and face everybody that she left, every, everybody she grew up with in town that knows who she is. She has to face the new sheriff in town, who plays into the story, of course. Mm-hmm. And she has to face the one person that won't forgive her for her past mistakes. Mm. You know, I listened on, the, on a podcast today about things that were difficult, things that somebody had done that was very unforgivable. And a man who started a non-profit organization in order to stop these unforgivable actions from happening. He had no forgiveness at all toward the person who had harmed him and his family, none whatsoever. And I found it really interesting that he could separate himself from the action of changing the world and making the world better and from the act of forgiveness. As I was listening to him talk, he was doing something good out of the bad that had happened to him, but he had such a deep, deep pain in him that he was unwilling to forgive. Do you have any ideas for listeners if you have a deep pain 
how can you begin the journey of forgiveness? It's a very difficult journey. It is not the same as forgetting. Mm -hmm. It's not the same as, okay, I will trust you again, whoever wronged them. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness has nothing to do with feelings, how you feel about it. It's a choice. Mm -hmm. And it's a choice that's deeply rooted in faith. It's kind of a simplistic idea of, well, do I trust God or don't I? Mm. Have you ever experienced something that you felt like you needed to forgive someone and you struggled with forgiveness? Absolutely. My son years ago was in a motorcycle accident on a friend of his motorcycle that was in bad condition. Mm-hmm. It put him in the hospital. It put him in ICU. He was in the hospital for about three weeks and the parents of the boy who owned the motorcycle, never came to see us. They didn't call, they didn't write, and they were believers. I remember one evening in my son's hospital room, I was so angry, almost shaking angry, you know, fighting, praying for my son's life, essentially, because he had a serious head injury. Mm. Jesus spoke to my heart, my spirit, my mind, however you want to describe it. And he said, you only have two hands. You can hold on to me, you can hold on to your son, and you can hold on to your anger. But you only have two hands, so which are you going to let go of? I realized that he was speaking the ultimate truth to me. There was no way I was going to let go of my son. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't let go of the Lord. So I had to let go of the anger. It was an action in me. I could feel myself letting go. I held my hands out open, sitting in my son's shadowy hospital room late afternoon. And I just imagined the Lord's hand in one of mine and my son's hand in the other one. And that left no room for the anger. And I had to just let it go. It wasn't a matter of how I felt about it. It was a matter of survival for both myself and my son. Today, the mother of the boy who owned the motorcycle and I attend the same church. And there is absolutely no animosity between us at all. It's gone. And that's not something that I I couldn't manufacture that. To me, that's on the miracle level Mm -hmm. of the power of forgiveness. And I see her and she sees me and we're friendly. And there isn't, there actually isn't anything growing there. Because if there were, it would be like a tumor. Mm -hmm. And it just isn't there. It's just God's forgiveness. When we make the decision, not based on feeling, but based on a decision, then he sweeps in with his healing. And he does things we can't do. How did you decide to use forgiveness in your book so that that message was underlying the story without giving away the ending? When you get down to how a person writes, I'm pretty much a seat of the pantser. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I just get into the cockpit and fly the plane, and it's a surprise to me as I go along for about the first 50 pages or so. Mm-hmm. And then I start looking for the roadmap and figuring out where things are going. But since this book about forgiveness is book two in a series, I had background information in my head about the heroine, the fact that she had eloped. But that's about all I had to start with. But she came back and had to face the music, you know, and so there are supporting characters in the story that encourage her and uh, since I write romance there's a guaranteed happy ending (laughs) but it's not a guaranteed smooth road (laughs) to get to that happy ending much like life and hence the title unexpected redemption Hmm. I think that's really neat so uh, what years or era is this set in 1881 
1881. Yeah, 80s, 1880s. Uh-huh. And what, where in, is it's in the U.S., where in the U.S.? It's along the front range of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. And I have it in a uh, fictional town of Olin Springs. I base a lot of my stories here because that's where I live. So when I'm creating these stories, I see the area as the area around me. And when I describe a setting in my books, it's pretty much where I live. I put in fictional towns and fictional people. Mm-hmm. But I love this area. It's very Western. You know, a lot of people think of Colorado as green and snow-covered. And I live in the southern half, so it's a bit more arid. Mm-hmm. I have choya cactus that go outside my house. And then I have also uh, Colorado blue spruce and aspen. So, you know, you name it, it grows around here. Yeah, people don't realize how deserty the Rocky Mountains can be. We live in Missoula area. And I have an aspen, and then come end of July and August, all that beautiful green goes away, and it is just brown everywhere. (laughs) It's amazing how the different areas, what someone's impression is of it, or misconception even maybe, to what we can actually write because we see it where they're living it and we understand it, how we can convey that setting out to the reader. What do you like to do with settings in your stories? For me, the setting is almost a character, Mm. and it influences the story. The meadowlarks, I talk about meadowlarks in my story because I hear them every day. There is a particular scene in this recent book of bringing down horses from the high country for the winter. The spectacular color of the aspen here in the fall as you know from Montana, is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. I have a drive in me that I've had since the sixth grade to put into words what I see and smell and feel and hear. And it's just something that I came stocked with that I have to address. I I like to put those things into my story, not paragraphs and pages of description. I don't like to read that and I don't like to write that. But a sentence or two, something that drops the reader into the setting of where things are happening. I want them to hear those meadowlarks and see those aspen leaves shouting gold against the pine-covered mountains. Mm, I think that sounds really beautiful. Now, just out of curiosity, I have gone to the Colorado State Fair as a young girl. It was hundreds, 100 degrees, and we went and watched the rodeo and all that. You know, your family being there, professional rodeo bullfighters, Um, Might I have seen you and your family at the Colorado State Fair? It's possible. About four or five years ago, two years in a row, my son won the Colorado State Championship Freestyle Bullfighting that's held at the Colorado State Fair. By freestyle, I mean it was just him and the Mexican fighting bull in the arena. Wow. It's a man against beast thing for about 90 seconds. 90 seconds doesn't sound like long because you use that word seconds, Mm -hmm. but when there is a freight train with little horns on the front of it going after you, 90 seconds is a long time. It is a long (laughs) uh, time. (laughs) Even a bull ride is only eight seconds. That's why it's called freestyle. It's man against beast. And my son, the same son that was in that motorcycle accident, won that. And amazing that he still has that kind of an adrenaline rush in him. (laughs) He wants to do that. Holy cow. Yeah, I I think it's an adrenaline addiction. Wow. But he grew up. He went to his first rodeo when he was six days old. He almost doesn't know anything else. We traveled as a family. Rodeo is a very family tight-knit thing nowadays. 
and the whole family will go. We had a rig that we hauled, you know, that I helped drive cross country all summer long into the fall. And our family went with us. We had everything we needed inside this rig, all of our animals and equipment and children. And I was always home. It was just the view outside the window that changed every couple of days. <laughs> I love that. We rodeoed in Montana for about five years. And I'm telling you, I could live up there. Oh, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take much. I love it. You're welcome to come up. That would be awesome. Our rodeo would consist of two miniature horses. <laughs> we worked Red Lodge, Montana championship rodeo every year for five years in a row yeah and in using your family's rodeo experience and using your husband's living with his grandparents you've used all of this together in this story how do you fictionalize the truth well the rodeo aspect isn't involved in this current story it's involved in other stories, but I usually always have a family member named. Mm -hmm. They don't always reflect the character. For instance, one book I wrote in my Canyon City Chronicles series, the first of three, I had a name of a character that I thought was perfectly fitting. And then I gave it some thought because it happened to be my mother-in-law's name. And this character wasn't that shiny. And I thought, well, you know, I need to change that name. Yeah, because you always want to be honoring of your mother, your mother-in-law, your father, your father-in-law. Exactly. I've used my grandparents' names, uh, their first names and last names, some of my husband's family. It, it's fun. It's fun to do, to bring in that heritage. I used my grandmother's name. She's Bavarian. I used her in a Christmas novella. That was a lot of fun because I could play off some German words. It's just a fun thing I, I like to do. That's something I love to do too, but not just using the names. Now, getting my genealogical studies credentials, my goal is to actually go back and find my ancestors and tell their stories through real research, and but then fictionalize them because you can't know a conversation that happened 150, 250 years ago. You just can't know that. Knowing the circumstances and the commonalities of the people and society around them, you can surmise and fictionalize conversations that make sense to the place and time. But it's a very difficult thing to try to tell the truth of, you know, like you can't do a nonfiction book like that very easily. Now, Davalyn, tell us where online we can find you before we go into this next break. My website, davalynspencer.com. I'm on Facebook, Twitter. Pinterest is fun because I have images that inspire me for all of my stories. Awesome. Well, we're going to come back right after this break and learn more about Davalyn Spencer. Stay right where you are. There's more Lit Up right after this. Pick up a copy of the Captive Brides Collection today. Great historic romances, perfect for any season. You can get it online or at your favorite local retailer. We're glad you're back for more Lit Up. Now here's your host, Angela Breidenbach. And we are back with our guest, Davalyn Spencer, who we have learned is from Colorado and who writes the Colorado settings along the Front Range into her books. And she also has professional rodeo bullfighters in her family. We'd like to know more about you and your history. How did you go about becoming creative? And let's start way back. What do you know about people in your own family lineage 
that might have been creative people. My mother's mother ran in the election for the mayor of Chillicothe, Texas. I can't give you the exact year, but just let me say it was back in the day. I'm not (laughs) sure of the exact year. Women didn't do that. But she did. Era Gar Jameson was her married name. Mm-hmm. She was an early telegrapher, one of the first women to do so, also in Texas. And she wrote for the Dallas newspaper of the time. I think that writing gene passed down through her to my mother, to myself. My mother was basically a homemaker and a fabulous cook. And she let me spend my time writing or playing the piano or playing the guitar and singing. So there was a lot of opportunity for creativeness as I was growing up. And the writing started in about the sixth grade when I started writing stories and poetry and such and continued. I wrote nonfiction for years as a rodeo journalist. I won my first literary award from the Pro Rodeo Sports News, which happens to be a gold and silver belt buckle from Gist. Most people have a belt buckle for writing event, and I have it for a writing (laughs) event. (laughs) That is awesome. And then I wrote as a correspondent for Pro Rodeo Sports News for years. Many, many articles, many photographs, had a couple of covers with them. I like photography. I do a lot of it. We Mm -hmm. traveled all over uh, for several years. And then I went to work for a daily newspaper as a journalist, crime beat reporter, features writer, every little thing that I have done builds upon for the next thing. Nothing has been wasted as I look back on what I've learned. You know, the first story I sold uh, was to a Christian publication, and I typed it on a typewriter in our rodeo rig and folded it up and put a stamp on the envelope and mailed it. You don't send stories in like that anymore today, as you know. This is uh, true. I've been through some changes And when I shifted from the yellow legal pad and the typewriter to the computer, my writing time was cut in half, as you know. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so much quick paste. You know, cut and paste used to mean cut and paste. (laughs) (laughs) It is so true. Well, tell us something. Have you done anything about building a family tree or learning about more than your grandmother? My brother has taken that over. Mm -hmm. He shares it with the family. And I know that I have family members that came west after the Civil War in the wagon trains. Mm -hmm. A great uncle was a physician that came along, and I have his gun. Oh, wow. His octagon barrel handgun. And my father had a lot of of, uh, firearms that he collected. They're all very old and uh, not exactly in working order. But, you know, sometimes you grow up with things, and they become commonplace, and you don't really see them. As I write and do research, it will come back to me. For instance, uh, this isn't something I've written about, but it might happen someday. My grandmother, my father's mother, had two friends who survived the Titanic. Really? Two sisters. And they would come and visit her out on the farm. Uh, we were a farming family. And I remember driving out there and my dad mentioning, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so are here visiting grandma. They were on the Titanic. You know, when you're 10, you don't really care. Right. And now, I wish... I wish I had said, wait, let's go talk to them. You know, I I don't think I knew what the Titanic was when I was 10. Not at 10, yeah, of course. And you know, you're so close to Molly Brown's house. Oh, I know. (laughs) I skipped school one day with my best friend and went to the Molly Brown house. During high school, there was times when we would get very, very bored in school. And instead of just skipping school and going to do things of mischievous or, you know, cause trouble, we 
made a pact that we went and did something educational that actually interested us. Now, kids listening, <laughs> I am not telling you to do this. <laughs> yeah. I'm just telling you this is what I did <laughs> and owning up to the truth. But we took a tour of Molly Brown's house one day, and our intention was we wanted to learn certain things about our local area and about life, and we were very fascinated with it. So we skipped school and we went and toured Molly Brown's house. And another time, she I was really into the Titanic and Molly Brown and just learning, because I also grew up part of my life in Colorado, and just learning those things, she became a hero to me most of my life. And I loved the fact that it didn't matter how flawed she was as a human being. It mattered that she listened to what she was supposed to do when God called her to stand up and do. And that's where I kind of base a lot of my heroes and heroines. I don't want them to be these perfect people. I want them to be normal people who were called to do something great. And I think we see that in the biblical characters and we see that in historicals and Western historicals and romances. We can see how we as flawed human beings have an opportunity in our life, and sometimes more than one, but we have an opportunity to do something great. And all of, like you said, things that came together to make you the writer that you are, all of those things came together to give you the opportunity to do something great. And in your case, one of those great things was forgiving someone. But another great thing is these books that you write that might change somebody else's life. Now, you put spiritual aspects into those books, correct? Yes. I had one reader write to me and say she wished that she could have read my books before she started dating so she could know how a woman should be treated by a man. Wow. So that she, she wouldn't have been treated like a test car taken for a test drive. Oh, and what a powerful really, thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that really impacted me when she said that because I didn't really think about, oh, I'm going to make this hero treat this heroine, you know, the way he should. I, I didn't think about that. I'm just telling the story. Mm -hmm. But it's organically coming out of my Christian worldview. Fiction speaks a lot of truth. It and does. just with the parables of Jesus, mm -hmm. they're the perfect example. And I was really blessed that she had that result from reading my books. Was there any book in particular that and she hopefully, referenced? Well, she was talking about my Canyon City Chronicles. It's three. It's a three-book series. It re-released under one cover mm -hmm. last year. It, of course, is set here in the actual Canyon City. It, it has a lot of actual history in it. And when you write, uh, of course, the characters are fictional. I've made up the characters. There are a few mm -hmm. mentioned that are, you know, notorious people that everyone knows. But mm -hmm. um, when you write historical fiction in the town where you live, you better get your facts straight because there's a historian on every corner and they will let you know if you've made a mistake. <laughs> that is so true. But that book has done really well. People have really enjoyed it. And each book focuses on one major thing, like the founding of the city and then the railroad wars. Mm -hmm. uh, because the Santa Fe and the Denver, they fought over the right-of-way through the Royal Gorge, which is just up the road here. It's the narrowest point through the Royal Gorge, which is like a 1,005 feet deep cavern, is 30 to 35 feet wide. Wow. And they had to build a hanging bridge to get the train over it. And 
there was you can't run two trains through there. So they had actual wars taking over cans, cannons, uh, military cannons in Pueblo and calling in marshals, you know, calling in uh, Bat Masterson and all of this stuff. So that's in one book. And then the third book is the dinosaur or bone wars, because we have a lot of prehistoric fossils in this area. It's that southern mm-hmm. uh, climate. Mm-hmm. They're well preserved, a place called Garden Park just outside of town. I think three Stegosaurus fossils have been unearthed there, and they're in, they're in various museums around the country. But there's a lot of rich history here, so I like to incorporate that, and that's what I did in the Canyon City Chronicles. They're the background for those books is actual history. Oh, I love that. And I love the idea that you suggest like the Royal Gorge or uh, where did you say the dinosaur bones are? You cut out there for a second. They're in the area known as Garden Park. Mm -hmm. This area was not a mining town. It was the food basket for the mining camps like Cripple Creek just up the road. Mm -hmm. They're still digging gold up there, you know. We grew a lot of the food back in the 1800s for the mining camps, truck farming and orchards, orchards everywhere around here. And then, of course, cattle. Mm-hmm. It's fun to incorporate all of that. And that third book is the one that won the Will Rogers Gold Medallion for inspirational fiction. And, and that was I was really honored to get that because that's a bunch of Western people. What is the title know? of that third? Romancing the Widow. Romancing the Widow. And you know, man, yes. I would I would love to have some the, article and, written by you about the Royal Gorge as a family educational vacation, or about the the dinosaur park. This would be such a fun way to educate and train up our children of the area, and then connect it to your book. That would be spectacular. It is a great area, and the hero of that book has my grandfather's name. Oh, which, what was your grandfather's name? <laughs> so, Tillman. What was his name? Tillman Harrison Jameson. The character, one of his names is Tillman. And, and we play off the two names there because he is a Colorado Ranger. Another thing which a lot of people don't realize, Texas wasn't the only state to have Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, you know, when you had territory mm-hmm. without law, you had to do something. That's right. Um, so, I, I write that in. You know, that's actual factual background yes i i wrote for the newspaper here for years and years and did a lot of stories on the royal gorge and families literally come here from all over the world to see it oh that's amazing all right we are going to be back right after this message stay right where you are there's more lit up right after this Discover how the troubles from your past have prepared you for a beautiful future in Gems of Wisdom by Angela Breidenbach. In Gems of Wisdom, you'll learn how to forgive emotional pirates, better manage negative people, tough situations, and face your fears. Become the woman of courage, confidence, and candor you want to be. Get your copy of Gems of Wisdom, the treasure of experience today, wherever books are sold or at AngelaBreidenbach.com. We're glad you're back for more Lit Up. Now here's your host, Angela Breidenbach. And we're back with our guest, Davalyn Spencer, and she has been telling us some amazing things about the Colorado setting, about how she has tied in her family history into her books, and actually recognized and honored some of the names of the people that are in her family history. But Davalyn, tell us, we're in our last segment. How have you been the master of your own story 
and how will you continue to be? Well, there's a passage in the Bible that says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And I chuckle when I see that translation that says he is the author. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's an accident. Believe God is writing his own story. And I want to stay connected to him so I hear his cues and I hear his leading. And to remember and acknowledge that maybe things don't go like I want them to, but who said they're supposed to? I agree. He uses everything. I have been challenged for writing romance. Oh, how can you write romance? Because it's happily ever after. And there's no such thing as a happily ever after. Well, I beg to differ. Uh, there's another scripture that says God works everything out for good for those who love him. Mm-hmm. What is that if it's not happily ever after? I've seen him take really crummy stuff and work it around to something good. Only God does that. That's right. He lets me do that in my stories. As you mentioned earlier about characters, they're flawed. If they're not flawed, they're boring. Nobody wants to read Pollyanna. Nobody wants to read that everything went right. Just like the reader that told me she wished she had read my book so she knew she didn't have to be a test drive like a car. Mm. There are struggles that everybody faces, whether it's historical fiction or contemporary fiction. We're facing those same interpersonal relationships, the same challenges, defeats, sadnesses, the same hesitancy to forgive ourselves. Sometimes it's easier to forgive somebody else. Mm-hmm. than it is to forgive ourselves. I think that's pretty universal. I think you're right. I think there's uh, times in our life where we just can't even and see why anybody would care about us or love us. And then that gets reinforced through a lot of the societal negativity. And then we start to think internally that we're worthless. God is a God of value and of worth. And when we put our hope in him, We don't see ourselves as worthless anymore because he is going to take who we are, that flawed person, and use us in a way that not only gives us an opportunity to be what he meant us to be, but also gives us back a sense of self, of worth, and of confidence. And I think that's something that is unique in the way that God deals with human beings And I encourage people that if you're feeling worthless today, if you're feeling like you can't do anything right, turn it over to God and ask him to take you on the journey that he has for you because he will work this together, not only for your good, but also so that you will see what you were made to do. It's a journey. It's not something that everybody just gets born into perfection. Those are myths. And I think that's why I like writing romance and why I like writing uh, fiction, because you can see how something that has happened that's difficult can be turned into something good and beautiful. And I think we can take our journey on that, our reader, I'm sorry, on that journey. And it's an amazing thing that happens internally when you read fiction, that you go on the journey with the character And you can internalize some of the wonderful things that can occur in your own life. It's like third-party validation, if that makes sense. It does make sense, and I think Jesus used that a lot in his parables because Mm -hmm. he told stories that people of the day could relate with. And that wasn't an accident. He did that on purpose. 
So what do you have in your future? What dreams do you still want to achieve? Does it have to do with writing? Does it have to do with something else? Well, I'd really like to see Vermont in the fall. Oh, that would be beautiful. Places I'd like to go. Mm -hmm. But I want to continue writing. I have many books. I have some that are completely finished that have not been published yet. I have many ideas in my head for books. I suspect that that's just something that will always be. You know, as long as I'm kicking and and running and walking and working on this side of glory, there will always be something. There will always be fodder there for my mind. But traveling, you know, going to other places, sharing uh, the excitement of Christ with grandchildren who are growing up. I have a granddaughter who's four. And her discovery... You know, and the way she relates to Jesus. Uh, and she, she says some adorable things. But the faith is so pure and straightforward and just it is what it is. I'm There's glad a lesson in that for people. Like me. There is. I have a humorous story to tell you. I have a granddaughter. Uh, I actually have one granddaughter and six grandsons. So we call them the boy cubs and the guppy. And, <laughs> and we took one of the boy cubs, her little brother, and guppy uh, camping over Memorial Weekend. And we were at the playground of the campground, and we were sitting on a bench or, you know, pushing them on swings and that kind of thing. And I sat down beside my husband, and she had met a new little friend and her new little friend's daddy. And the little friend said to her, do you want to come back to my trailer? And because we have an RV and they have a, a trailer pull behind. And Guppy said, well, I don't know. Maybe you can come to where I live. And then she turned and she pointed at us and she said, but I don't live with those people. <laughs> we started laughing. <laughs> and we're like, wait, wait. <laughs> we're their grandparents. It's okay. <laughs> we didn't steal them. Right. But it was like the sudden shock moment right. of, you know, these people, have, I'm just with these people <laughs> for the weekend. It was hilarious. But some of those moments that you want to capture and and hold the humor that a child says. A part of that is also true. I don't live here on this earth. I'm just visiting here. My home is in heaven. Right. And a little child can point that out in such a humorous way. Well, I don't live there. I really live here. But I think when we start to interact with uh, these little ones and the stories that we can tell them of our people, of our ancestors of God, of where our real home is, and of how much we love them. We can really make a difference in a child's life. And if we can introduce books to them now, they can live a life that is rich and full and educated. And it just gives the whole person a much more beautiful future. I want to thank you so much for being with me, Dave Lynn. Is there anything that you would like to share in about 30 seconds before we go? Yes, I would like to encourage people to write. Some people really want to write and they'll be envious, you know, in their admiration. And and I always want to tell them, you need to write your story for your family and for the people that will come after your children. It may sound boring to you because you're used to it and you look at it every day, but there will be things in it that in 50 to 100 years are different and unique, like my great aunt hiding in the big flower barrel from the Indians. You know, that was no big deal to her, but that was a huge deal to me. And I intend to use that someday in a book. But I, people can write their story for their family. It doesn't have to be published. It doesn't have to be a New York Times bestseller. That's invaluable treasure. 
They can do something as simple as go to a local bookstore and get a journal that asks questions and they fill in the blanks. And there's also genealogical societies that now have forms that you can, you can go to genealogicalstudies.com and there is a store there where you can download different books and forms to help you figure out how to fill in who the people in your family are or what the, uh, the different siblings are within the stories. And you can flip those over, fill out family trees, and you can get a $5 giant, two foot by three foot, nine generation family tree for $5 at the genealogicalstudies.com at their store. Things like that that can at least start the conversation, start the journey, and begin sharing not only your family stories, but stories of, like you said, hiding in a flower barrel or putting together the Royal Gorge railroads that only came together through war. How do we know those stories and remember them if we don't tell them? Davalyn, thank you so much for being with me. And I am just looking forward to seeing more books come from you so that we continue to encourage others to write, to read, and to be the masters of their own stories. Thank you, Angie. It's been my pleasure. A quick update since we had the chance to record with Dave Lynn Spencer, and since I had the chance to go to the Connecting Writers with Hollywood conference, I do have a new book collection coming out, but it's my honor to be in it with ladies like Robin Lee Hatcher, Vicki McDonough, and Deborah Rainey. These ladies and I created a collection of four full-length novels. They're contemporary romances, and we're putting them into a collection called Out of Their Element. The fun parts of this are either the heroine and hero, or both the main characters, are put into positions that put them way out of their elements, and romance runs amok amongst all of that. I know in some of the stories we have fun heroes that are more like a computer geek, and yet there's still strong masculine characters that we all will love. Some of them are like mine. He's kind of the guy next door. It turns out that that is a strong suit in the heroes that I write. They tend to be more the boy next door and the girl next door stories. And I think that's more relatable to people in the real world today. But what I'm also going to be doing in the future with my books is really starting to add more of a thread of genealogy into the romances and into the stories that I write. This particular one that I've got is called Footprints on Her Heart. It's in this collection, Out of Their Elements. It'll be coming out this summer. And the reason I wanted to write this story was I have a book called A Healing Heart, which tells the story of Mara. She's a woman who has a heart attack, and she has three teenage kids. It came out with Abingdon Press. But then Abingdon Press closed their line, and they've started to focus more on nonfiction. So they're not doing fiction anymore. So the sequel to A Healing Heart never got the chance to see the light of day, even though they felt like it was a good story. So I rewrote that story to be able to fit this collection out of their elements. And now I have the opportunity to share with you Mara's daughter, Cadence Keegan. She's come of age. She owns her own gym because she cares about physical fitness and health. Where would she get that caring? Because she saw her mother go through a heart attack and have to come back and care about her health and care about her family and put her life back together. So that's the backstory 
for Cadence Keegan, and you'll meet her in Footprints on Her Heart, coming out in the Out of Their Elements collection with me, Angela Breidenbach, with Robin Lee Hatcher, with Vicki McDonough, and with Deborah Rainey. And I'll have a chance to interview these ladies on upcoming Lit Up episodes. So stay tuned, and thanks for being with me. Thank you for joining us on Lit Up. Light up your literary world. Expand your imagination. Enhance your life. Lit Up will be back next week with another great conversation. Join us, won't you? Right here on Lit Up. I'd rather be